Thoughts presented by Prescouter. Our podcast focuses on big ideas in healthcare and life sciences. I'm Jeremy Schmier, and with me is Dr. Ryan LaRanger. There is an unfathomable amount of information that comes from a variety of sources, some credible, some less credible. For instance, there is a ton of information existing in the public domain, the literature, peer-reviewed articles, and even negative data. Today, we're focusing on healthcare research in general. And Ryan, as an academic yourself, I'm interested in your perspective on the fact that there are something like two to three million academic papers coming out each year. Perhaps you can walk us through the paper publishing process and how credible said published materials are. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. Um, first, part of why there are so many publications and why this number has grown so dramatically is because the population of scientists in the biomedical space have grown, has grown dramatically. And on top of that, papers are the coin of the realm. If you want to get a job, if you want to get promoted, if you want to get tenure, if you want job security, if you want grants, one of the primary metrics used to determine will this person advance is tell me about how many papers they have and tell me about how many first author papers they have when they're in the development step and how many senior author papers they have when they are um, mentors or more senior. So everyone really, really wants to publish and because you know, they're incentivized to. In terms of the publication process, uh, an important thing to keep in mind is that uh, the peer review process in science is strong, it's not perfect, but you know, there's no perfect system. And what generally happens is you and your team, you put together a body of research, you write a story around it, and you send it to a journal. The journal recruits anonymously a number of your peers and asks them to say, to review your work and judge it based on the scientific merits and the results. Uh, they give you feedback, you have a chance to adopt it, maybe do more experiments, check your results, make sure everything is good, and then you send it back. And then hopefully, uh, if things go well for you, you get published. Now, this system, it's it sort of like the honor system, but not entirely, right? One of the things that's important to keep in mind about it is that good review depends on professors having enough time to really look carefully at what you're doing and for them to feel incentivized and like they are part of the field. Uh, there have been, and this is obnoxious, but in the mathematics space and a few other, I think it was a uh, political science, there have been some papers which were intentionally garbage. <laughs> uh, just a random word generation, not exactly random word generated, but close to it that were built, written by an AI by a lab that just wanted to see, will this get through? And in some less reputable journals, they did. You called attention to something that I think is interesting. So sometimes the availability of the professors or whoever's part of the peer review process could be a big factor as to whether you get published. Now, I'm wondering what that does to the quality of, of these papers. And you, know, you, <laughs> you might be in a situation where the person who's been published many times before, are they more likely to be published again simply because, oh, well, they probably have good information. Is there a bias that occurs? How political? And I don't want to put you on the spot, but can this become a political issue? 
Oh, I, um, politics in science is a concern. And unfortunately, to be perfectly as fair as I can be to all sides, I don't know how you avoid it. Or at least it, it's very difficult to imagine a world where you avoid it. Because if you think about it, in a world of scarce resources, there's no way to perfectly check everything, right? And so even in real life, like when I'm shopping on Amazon, I tend to buy the things that have more positive reviews, right? Like it, it's, that's the, that's that behavior is that there is a political element to be sure there is networking involved absolutely sometimes there are scientific fads and if you follow them you're more likely to be funded sure I, I, the problem with this and with other elements of commentary in the scientific field is that we can complain about parts of it as not being perfectly fair, but it is very difficult to imagine an alternative. So uh, let me preface it, let me shorten it out by saying something along these lines, which is uh, there is some, but it does not allow for complete fraud or it, it's not absolutely an issue. It is just part of the world in which scientists live. Understood. So that kind of is a good segue to my next question of, you know, only a small percentage of academic research is ever commercialized. And what I mean by that is only a small percentage is actually adopted by a big pharma or a large CPG and something is actually made or developed from the results of some of this research. How might you respond to that? You know, how does one cut through the noise of the crowd? Oh, gosh, where do I begin? Um, so there are a couple of steps to this, and they're all hard, right? Uh, most people who go into science, uh, basic scientists in particular, but even more broadly, we tend to get very engaged in very specific problems, right? A particular protein, a particular pathway. And those kinds of discoveries, while often extremely important, right? Foundational, fundamental stuff uh, can change the face of medicine. One of my favorite examples of this is the person who discovered GFP, right? They were just interested in firefly luminescence and they revolutionized how we develop cancer therapeutics, right? Uh, that's an example of, you know, happy lightning in a bottle, haha. But, <laughs> sorry. Uh, but the, uh, so that's part of it, right? Many scientific discoveries in the basic science world are not designed for commercialization and are frankly very difficult to adopt for a commercial need because they are only one piece of generally a much larger puzzle. That, that's the first point. And uh, before I move on, does that make sense? Does that track? Yeah, it sounds like, you know, the old needle in the haystack. Some of the information is useful and some of it may not be as useful depending on your goal, but continue. Yeah, um, another part of it is a matter of how, how easy is it to replicate some of the things that are done. So there are some cases where a project will work in one lab on a particular, let's say, mice right? Not many basic science labs have, you know, teams of thousands of humans they can test. And so the thing to keep in mind is uh, pharmaceutical companies for everybody, um, a significant portion of the results of research do not under any circumstances make it all the way to being a drug because we are, as a scientific community, 
forced to deal with systems which only kind of approximate where we eventually want to go, right? So it's actually, the thing I would argue is that most scientific research and articles are written in and performed in good faith. It's just our models are often not up to, or there are gaps where it just won't apply necessarily that well to something which can be commercializable. Does this um, kind of allude to what we talk about sometimes in terms of negative data maybe uh, from clinical trials or information that might have been on the right track, but you know the study failed at one point or another, and you can pick up on that data to inform a different study? You know, talk about the negative. Uh, data I'd, I'd love to, but. <laughs> just it's so this is sort of a personal pet peeve of mine um people are rewarded for publishing positive results and when i say rewarded i mean they are allowed to continue their careers when they publish positive results it's an interesting uh, dynamic uh, it's not great incentive uh, structures it has it has some real problems and we'll talk about them in a second but one of the underlying things about it is in the scientific community in the publishing world, uh, in my opinion, important caveat, negative data is hugely undervalued. And the problem with that, because you think like, oh, you know, this person didn't publish anything that didn't work out. That's fine. We want to hear about successes. The problem is then you have hundreds or thousands of other people who read the same background literature. Maybe they have the same idea and they try it and it doesn't work. And then they don't publish it. I... It's, in my opinion, it's a real problem, but to refute myself a little bit, there is a stigma, perhaps right, perhaps not, I honestly don't know, where negative results are negative results because of an error in experimental execution as opposed to design. And this is an important distinction, right? There can be negative results because I did an experiment, I planned it perfectly, my controls were in place, my hands were rock solid, I nailed it, and just the phenomenon doesn't exist in the way that I hypothesized that it did. And then there's the uh, negative result where it was three in the morning, I hadn't slept in 48 hours, my hands maybe slipped, and there's a negative result and I can't explain it. And uh, there is a difference between obviously the one on that I just said, where it's a process error. It, publishing that doesn't teach anyone anything. But if you can well document a negative result, and sometimes journals do publish these, I just wish it were more common. Um, those I think could have a lot of value, but there's not really a journal of negative results right now or anything like it, which I think is a darn shame. Well, it sounds like the experiments are well thought out but there's a number of variables that might exist to make sure that you can actually get the results that you're after. And a small slip up, even if you may have been on the right track, can, can ruin the experiment that, you know, absent or if that variable were controlled, may not have happened. Yeah, I, I welcome to science on that one. Yeah. It's just, you, you, spend a lot of, you spend a lot of time in science being wrong and making mistakes and making improvements. But... The thing that I sort of really want to make sure that we hit on mm -hmm. is a bunch of these underlying issues 
right? People publishing anything that's pretty positive. Um, P-hacking, which is a huge problem, uh, just very briefly to explain it. Um, getting statistical significance on the result you're looking for and then stopping immediately. It's not quite fraud, but it's not the most rigorous way to do things. And it's been identified as a problem in the field uh, because people are really wanting to get to the point where they can publish. Um, so, you know, p-hacking, publishing these things, uh, part of what why they exist, in my opinion, is because the pressure to publish is so high right now. Uh, just to do some statistics, um, the success rate for an R01 grant in the United States in 2021 was, I was just looking this up, and if I'm wrong, I'll be embarrassed, about 20%, uh, which seems like a high number, but you have to keep in mind that um, if you are applying for an, like the R01 is the grant which says you get to have a lab, right? That's the, you're a scientist, you've gone really far along, this is the grant which is going to support you. That number used to be much higher than 20%. And so what it's saying is every year, 80% of like major lab funding doesn't go to the people who ask for it. That's insane. In, in my opinion, that's insane. That's, it creates a pressure cooker where yeah. it's very hard to make new labs and get them be funded. And the R01 is just the start of your journey. Oftentimes, it's getting that getting that grants how you begin. But the interesting thing is, for for the layman, you almost respect the fact that there's a pretty tight filter. Now, I'm not in academia myself, and I've never run a lab. But part of me says, well, you know, maybe that's a good thing if there is a, a strict filter. How do you respond so to that? Here's the problem with a strict filter, and it's a difference between um, this is one of my favorite management concepts, uh, Slack, right? There are certain kinds of activities where you want to have an organization with very little slack, by which I mean to say, uh, for instance, in a factory, you want to have a prescription for I want this many cars, I want them to have this quality, I want 20% of them to be blue, here's the square you're going to stand in, please make the car, right? Mm -hmm. And this works because the process is very well known you have a very good sense of what the inputs are and what the outputs will be given those inputs, right? So that's a situation where high, low slack is essential. Think about basic science. With basic science uh, or academic science in general, you don't know, you can't know by definition what inputs will result in what outputs. Right. Like sometimes that person who's on the factory line, they'll make a car. Sometimes they'll make a jet plane. But most of the time they're going to make a pile of parts. Right. And you can't control for that. But from a management perspective, like management of science, uh, what you can do is provide an environment which gives them the opportunity to fail creatively and eventually get some success. And the problem, and why I think uh, high stringency in academic science is such poison to some degree, is that uh, you are telling scientists to do the thing that they know will produce a result. Right, because it's like confirmation bias to some because, degree. Well, to some degree, but also it's instead of going for the really risky thing where 
they're pushing the outer boundaries and they don't know if it'll turn into a paper, right? Because ultimately, like some of these really great questions, like the Higgs boson is a good example of this, where the guy said in the modern environment, I like never get, I never would have gotten tenure because I went, I think ten, he went a large number of years without a publication. But the idea behind it is if you heavily, if you require, if you have high stringency, right? Uh, sci ad, admit, uh, academic science with low slack, where people must publish on a regular interval, they will do experiments which are, feel very safe and that are for, somewhat formulaic and can get you a paper. Just to check the box. Well, because they have to. If right. they don't, they lose their lab. They need to check that box, right? They need to check that box. And let's say there was an environment with lower slack, right? Like let's say instead of 20%, it was 50% or 60% of R01 applications got their funding, right? Now, when the NIH is looking for labs to give this funding to, instead of just looking for who are the safe bets, who have the most papers, now all of a sudden the people at the granting agency can say, hey, this person has a really interesting idea, and I have no idea if it'll work. Let's take a chance on it and see. So I think the, and we're getting uh, close on time here. The one thing, yeah, I know that you've got a lot to say about this one. Um, I think if I were to summarize it, if you were to say, hey, let's revolutionize this a bit, freedom within a framework, enough amount of filtration for ideas, but with an, a, level, a level of slack that allows for a certain level of creativity and innovation. Was that a, a fairly decent, I'll, a, let you, I'll let you have no, last no, that, word on this. <laughs> that's, a, that's a fine way to frame it. And it's just... As we develop more, because the amount of data in the world is increasing it by huge leaps and bounds, right? And so we need to have a conversation, and groups are having conversations, on how do we manage a world where data is more open and can work towards the benefit of humanity while still allowing academic scientists or uh, industry scientists to benefit from the fruits of their labor such that we're not asking them to work for free because, I mean, that's ridiculous too, right? It's you want there to be an incentive structure. You want people to not get rolled over entirely, but access to this data is useful. Now, uh, all of this being said, of course, it makes for it's challenging to turn all of these data into insights and that's something which you know we can certainly work on uh but at a high level if uh, you know heartwarming ending it's i think things are sort of moving in the right direction it's just a lot is changing very quickly and there's a bit of adaption that needs to be done excellent ryan i think we can leave it there for now and to be We'll say not quite a pun, but this has certainly been an education for me um, yeah. <laughs> on academia. That was terrible. Um, uh, well, we hope you enjoyed this conversation. Uh, find us on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher to subscribe to our podcast. And you can join us again next week where we'll be discussing proteomics. Until then, thanks for listening.